Welcome to Thanks It's the Trauma. I'm Dr. Alyssa, and this is a podcast with my friends, Nikki and Heidi. We're connected by a unique and unusual experience, and we talk about it and other traumas with honesty, booze, and cuss words. Season two, episode three, EMDR. Should we start with a definition of EMDR? Yeah. Do you, do either of you know what EMDR stands for? Do you want yes, to it's a lot of words. Eye desensitization. Manipulation. I, wait, eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. Very like so close. Desensitization, but yes. That's what I said. (laughs) Wait, say it for me again. So it's eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. Ooh, okay. That's probably going to be a test question for your master's degree, Nikki. Oh, for sure. I got to spell it all right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... I'll give a little bit of info on what EMDR is. And if you guys have any questions, you can ask them because maybe other people will have some questions too. So EMDR was essentially discovered by this lady, Francine Shapiro, back in the 80s. She's a psychologist or she was in school for psychology at the time or something. And she was taking a walk and she was really stressed and she started moving her eyes back and forth and noticed that it really calmed her down. And then she started, <laughs> Heidi's moving her eyes back and forth like a weirdo. <laughs> I just thought I would try oh, it. Lord. So she started doing some research on this thing and then turned it into a therapy that has become widely popular. It really encapsulates several different types of therapies. But, you know, one of the main mechanisms of it is the bilateral stimulation. So stimulating either side of the brain. And that's what you were just doing, Heidi, with moving your eyes back and forth, right? So you're stimulating one side of the brain and then you're stimulating the other. Kind of like when you're asleep and you have your REM sleep, right? Your rapid eye movement sleep, your eyes are going back and forth. It's stimulating either side of the brain. And that's when you're dreaming. So that's when your brain is processing information. So there's something to that bilateral stimulation that helps you to kind of move information, process information. And my take, and I think I pulled this from other clinicians is that really the way that we handle trauma in our culture does not really facilitate processing, healing and processing the way that we need it to. So where in past times, that kind of REM sleep might've been enough to be able to process trauma alongside of the ways that we handle trauma in culture. That is not true of our, of our culture today. And I'll even say this with clients like, we're in here and you're having a hard time and you're crying. And then right before the session is up, what are you going to do? Like, okay, let me make sure everything looks okay. Let me like, do I have any mascara running down? Like, is everything okay? Do I stop? You know, before I go out there into the world, I need to look okay. I need to be okay. And so that mindset in our culture, I mean, stops trauma processing. And so I think EMDR is is something that helps us to kind of bring in what naturally already exists in us and kind of facilitates trauma healing. So what you do is you end up identifying certain things that you couldn't tell are not processed. And how you tell they're not processed is that they really still bother you on some level. It doesn't mean that you're thinking about them all the time, although that can be one way of identifying it. You might not ever think about it. You might try not to think about it, which is often a sign of PTSD is avoidance of thinking about something that's really traumatic. Nikki, you relate to that? Yeah. Both hands Uh, up. (laughs) 
(laughs) So, you know, but it's something that once you do start to think about it, if you can identify that there's some disturbance of whether that's, you know, your stomach hurts or your heart is racing or you feel tearful or you feel a sense of like, I don't want to go there at all. You know, like those are all kind of indications that there's some disturbance level. And so we identify memories that are disturbing and then work through them one by one using that uh, bilateral stimulation. That can be through eye movements, but it can also be through tactile. So like some therapists, including myself, have little buzzers that people hold in their hands and they just buzz back and forth or audio. So just beeping back and forth with headphones. And then as you do that, what happens is you start to process what occurred. You start to process the trauma and you have a more adaptive way of viewing it. And, and your, your beliefs about yourself and your place in the world are often fairly negative as it relates to the trauma. And then as you're doing EMDR, that tends to get better and that tends to improve and your perspective shifts. And it's really pretty amazing. What do you feel like the data says? I mean, because today we're talking about like the three of us feel like it has the potential to actually work, you know, not just be like a theory of the girl walking through the woods with her eyes going back and forth, but like actually in the case of like our unique traumas that it's worth investing time and money into. But what does the data actually say for, do you know that, Alyssa? About its effectiveness? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't tell, I haven't memorized any kind of numbers or statistics, but what I can tell you is, is that this is the like number one approved trauma treatment. I think one of the things that ended up making this more mainstream of a therapy is that the VA approved it for vets who were experiencing PTSD and it was their preferred therapy for, for vets. So I think that, that that really made a big shift for, for people in being able to validate that EMDR was a good trauma treatment. And there's the idea of trauma, and we've talked about this to some degree being a trauma podcast, but there's big T traumas, little T traumas. We talked about this before. Not on here. Oh my God. Okay. Well, it's about time. So big T traumas are things that everybody would say is traumatic. They're the things that are like listed in the diagnostic and statistical manual when we're talking about PTSD, like rape, going to war, a natural disaster, watching someone die. Things that like everybody would say like, oh yeah, that was traumatic. And everybody going through it would be like, oh, that was traumatic. Is your spouse transitioning male to female in that DSM criteria? It's, it's actually not. That's fucking bullshit. <laughs> so then there's. I mean, I think trauma. I really do feel like it's okay. right up there with like rape and war. But it depends. Well, okay. Yeah, not everyone sees it that way. Right. So then, okay. then there's little t traumas. Little t traumas are experienced by the person the same as a big t trauma, but they vary person to person with what they are. So. I mean, really, I think our experience of of discovering our spouses were trans is a little T trauma. And that is not to minimize our experiences. It's just to say some people finding out their spouse is trans are like, super, I've been like bi this whole time and like, or I've been actually gay. Or I mean, we saw that in, like in, in that group. I remember that we were in Heidi, like there was that like one woman that was like, I was so excited when I found out my husband is really a transgender woman because I really think I've been a lesbian this whole time. And it's like, oh. Yeah. What an amazing thing. So it is. That's true. Or they were like, sweet. I've been trying to get out of this marriage for a long time. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Nikki raises her hand. (laughs) I was like, seriously, if you listen to all of season one, you know, that's a joke. (laughs) 
just a smart ass. Yeah. Okay. So going into this episode, Dr. Alyssa, like it is your expert opinion that we are on little T traumas. Well, yes. I think all of us have experienced a big T trauma at different points. If you want me to identify those for us. (laughs) (laughs) Does mine have the word neglect in it? (laughs) Yeah, probably. Okay. Yeah. Mickey starts with the letter S. Yeah, suicide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Alyssa, I would think that your biggest T trauma would be, can I say abandonment? Probably my biggest T would just be abuse. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just, would be abuse. <laughs> you know, just abuse, whatever. Just the big T. <laughs> abuse. (laughs) Well, I'm really excited to dig in and learn more. Dr. Alyssa and Nikki, you guys are ahead of me in the EMDR journey. And we're going to talk about why for that, because I've been in therapy since 2005. I don't exactly remember when it was first introduced to me to try. It wasn't in 2005, but it was years later, but it was introduced to me long before this trauma to engage in EMDR and I just keep getting scared. And I, mm. and I, I will talk my way all the way through the session and scare my way out of it. So I'm really excited to hear what your experiences have been and kind of how we process self-care and things afterwards and getting through the sessions. So that maybe if there's any listeners out there like me that are really wanting to like push through but keep backing away from addressing the little T's and the big T's. And then maybe we can give some practical advice on today's, yeah, on today's episode. So now we're going to talk about our individual and unique experiences with EMDR. Cool. So, so so. (laughs) I'm already deep breathing because I'm getting anxious. (laughs) Whose heart rate is up? (laughs) Here we go. We're recording on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon without alcohol and Xanax. Breathing. Slow butterfly tapping. Yeah. So how about this question? Who started EMDR first? So I'm on my year one. Yeah. Melissa, I, probably. I did EMDR in 2010. Okay. And then Nikki, I just started in April. No, May. Okay. Of this year. Okay. So... Nikki and I are kind of on the same path. And then Dr. Alyssa, you have really had a lot of experience also having your doctorate in counseling. Yeah, on both sides of it. So in 2010, Alyssa, take me back. How did you choose to do or why did you choose EMDR? That's a good question. So I was in my internship at this point in 2010 for counseling. And I was at a place actually where Nikki, where you go for counseling, that did a lot of EMDR. A lot of the clinicians there did EMDR. And I was really kind of curious and also skeptical about it. I was like, what is this? It seems kind of weird. And I was like, well, I really haven't done a lot of therapy, which is kind of shocking because I was becoming a therapist and hadn't really ever done therapy. <laughs> I was like, you know, I've got some shit. I should probably go and, you know, try this out as a client and see how it goes. And if I really like it, then I can go become trained in it. 
So I decided to do it as a client and it absolutely changed my life. Like night and day, things that I thought I could never let go of, never heal from, I healed and I see myself differently. I see my past differently. I can say, oh yeah, the abuse, you know. I couldn't even have identified that that's what I'd experienced at that time, you know, much less been able to like make a joke about it. So it definitely changed a lot for me. That's why we're all here, right? To be able to joke Mm -hmm. about our traumas eventually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Nick? Well, me and Heidi come from different, Heidi goes in and gets a little scared of jumping in and I went and I'm like, let's go, let's do it. because I think I've just waited so long that one, I want to be a therapist. And like you said, I didn't do a lot of therapy and how can I counsel people without having dug up my own dirt and faced it and know what the outcome is and tell them that this is going to suck and then it'll get better. You know, like just go through the process. And then also I just needed to go through the process because there's trauma that I didn't call trauma until I met you guys. To me, it was just, that's life. And you just, you know, everyone has crappy shit in their life, some worse than others, but I didn't ever consider it trauma. And so I went in specifically gearing towards EMDR for my mom's suicide. I was one of the main ones. And then my divorce. And, you know, there's there's some childhood and some teen stuff that are probably little T's that weren't huge things for me. You know, we processed them pretty fast or reprocessed them pretty fast, but we're still on my mom and we're probably four or five sessions in. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we're still in the first 24 hours. I mean, we're not even, there's a lot of um, stops and goes, lots of trauma inside the trauma. Yeah. (laughs) My heart's beating really fast right now. Yeah, what do you think that is? Because I automatically go to the spot where we left off and I'm, mm-hmm. I've been processing that one spot for about three sessions and yeah. it's not done yet. Mm-hmm. And it's still very activating and I want to cry right now just mm-hmm. thinking about it and my heart is beating really fast. Yeah. Can we go to your special safe place? Did you create that with your therapist and EMDR? I so did. that when you get I have a picture in? of my safe place. Okay. Uh, and honestly, my safe place is just being able to breathe because I don't breathe in those moments at all. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna breathe now. Cry already. <laughs> I yeah, think thank that you for, for being that open. Yeah. And being willing to to go there so that hopefully <sighs> other people can see that even though it's hard, it's doable. Well, like you said, it's going to change my life and that is the goal and I need to live a full life. So I need to get rid of all the stuff that holds me back that it causes other, th- other things. And I'm finding that in all of this too. I'm like, Oh God, well there, that's why that is why I'm like this. <laughs> that's yeah. why I think everyone's going to leave and, you know, from hour to hour, mm-hmm. you know, like any minute spontaneously disappear. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Um, Heidi? Yeah. I think that I chose EMDR because it was suggested to me. I mean, it was as simple as that. I didn't do any Google searching. I didn't, hadn't known anyone before I met the two of you. 
And this had started before we kind of went on this journey. So it was just something that was suggested. And so I was like, sure, I'll try it. But like with you, Nikki, and with you, Alyssa, like we know I have this big, little T, big trauma right in front of me right now with my husband's transition, the way I've interpreted as a death. And it's almost like, though, in order to get to that, I feel like I have to start at the very beginning. Yes. Yes. And it's like, I can't get to like why this is so big and so heavy until I go back and talk about why I had a severe eating disorder, what it was like when my mom abandoned me when I was young to go off on some life adventure, what it was like to be raised by an alcoholic, like blah, 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 you know, all those different things, what it was like to be in the middle of a party and have alcohol poisoning, you know, there's so many things, little T's to get to. And so I just kind of get stuck because it's all so scary. It's so scary. Yeah. But like the alternative is that I just keep eating my way through life and not functioning and not being the best version of myself. So when my therapist was like, I really feel like we could help you with your current food issues, with the current anxiety and panic attacks, but like, we're going to have to dig in. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. I've had many clients come in wanting to work on the most recent hard thing. And sometimes I have been like, okay, let's give that a shot. And most of the time when I've done that, I've been like, that was a mistake. We really, because it's so layered. It's like the foundation is those, are those earlier childhood experiences, those early traumas that we experience. And we ha- we do, like you said, we have to address those before we can get to why the most recent one was so hard and so life altering. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Got it. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things like we have already pinpointed in my therapy is like my big trauma, right? Like each one of us can have like this hallmark and all my hallmark of this trauma is I feel abandoned. I feel as if someone chose a different life other than me that I wasn't enough. I don't feel chosen. Well, when we start backing it up, mom left when I was a year old. And that little baby girl didn't have anybody to hold her. And then this pattern continued of not being chosen. So here, what some people in that group could be like, oh, awesome, amazing. My spouse is trans is like this ginormous mountain for me to climb because I have to now work through how to choose myself. Yeah, because it isn't just the most recent trauma. It's all the others that came before it. And there usually is like early on when we experience trauma, we usually do assign meaning to it, right? We do this all the time. We assign meaning to things where there's not meaning, but we assign some kind of meaning to it. And so for you, that might be like people, people leave me. I'm not good enough for people to stay around or, you know, I'm going to be alone or whatever it is. And then we look for, not intentionally, but we look for ways to prove that that's true. So then anytime something bad happens, 
we go right back to that negative, negative belief. Mm-hmm. Well, now that you know almost everything about us, let's hang out on social. On Insta, you can find us on Thanks It's the Trauma podcast everywhere else, including our website, just thanks, it's the trauma. And if you have any questions or want to email us, we would love to get back to you. Thanks, it's the trauma podcast at gmail.com. Well, that reminds me, I'm going to bring up something on my phone that my therapist had sent to me when we decided to engage in EMDR. And it's a document I'm sure that you guys are familiar with, and it's examples of negative and positive cognitions, which we've kind of been talking about. Where my heart started beating really fast, Nikki, is when my therapist had asked me to look at the negative cognitions in in regards to a specific trauma, and then asked me to pick out like what feels like I'm connected to that thought or whatever. So I just wanted to give the audience an example of some of these, right? I'm not good enough. I don't deserve love. I'm a bad person. I'm incompetent. I'm worthless and inadequate. I am shameful. I'm not lovable. I deserve only bad things. I deserve to die. I should have done something. I did something wrong. I should have known better. What does this say about me? I am shameful. I am stupid. I am inadequate. I am weak. I cannot trust anyone. I cannot protect myself. I am in danger. I am not safe. I'm going to die. I'm not in control. I'm powerless. I cannot stand up for myself. I cannot be trusted. I cannot trust myself. I'm a failure. I cannot succeed. I cannot handle it. These are just some examples. And I think each one of us had to look at that list and figure out what negative cognitions we were identifying with. And then tying it to a positive cognition, right? This is where I get stuck in EMDR and we'll dig in a little bit further, but like, I'll give you an example. One of my big ones is I am not safe. I cannot trust anyone. And then on the other one, it says, I can choose whom to trust. I feel safe now. I have never gotten to those positive (laughs) cognitions, like those Mm -hmm. positive cognitions I don't feel. For me, my therapist has said, this is the whole point of EMDR is we're going to disassociate from these negative cognitions and really bring to life these positive cognitions like I am good enough. I am lovable. I am honorable. I did the best I could. I'm fine as I am. I can choose whom to trust. I am now in control. I can succeed. I can handle it. So Nikki, looking at that list, I know you went in like with the goal to talk about your mom's suicide first. Did you go back further than that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the I went f- back to probably four or five years old and again, centered around my mom leaving and she would go on trips and I knew that she'd come back, but I was always devastated she would leave. And I'd cry for like the entire week they were gone and stare out the window waiting for her, even though I knew she was not coming back for days, but I'd always felt like she's never coming back. Just her, not my dad, not so Mm -hmm. much, no one else, always her. So yeah, I repressed that. 
And my big ones are always, I'm helpless and I'm powerless because I don't get a choice in these things. These things have happened and I didn't get a choice or a say. And that's going to carry through to the end, I think. And then I got into high school. I got a big car accident when I was in high school with a boyfriend. And I thought I wasn't going to get out of the car because we were upside down. And I couldn't get my door open. And I was kicking and kicking and kicking. And the door wouldn't open. I thought the car's going to explode or something. And I'm going to be stuck in here. So that was a hard one because, again, powerless. I don't have a choice. And now I think I'm going to die. Like, I'm not getting out of this. But that we very process out. Those were very short sessions, maybe two or three on each of those. But the mom one is mom. And I think the divorce are going to be the big, big bigs. When you look back at that experience and reprocessing, let's say like from the perspective of like the car accident, are you able to look back at the car accident now and say, I feel safe now? Yeah, because I made it out alive, right? So I've got confirmation I was not going to die. (laughs) But in that moment, I mean, blackout, that blackout dissociation, like I don't still remember how I got from the car wreck back home to my dad. Like, I don't know. There's no recollection of what happened in that time, how I got out of the car and how I got home. I don't know. But in that memory, there was a, my dad and I, my dad didn't always show a lot of affection or concern. Not so much for me. I was not the favorite child. (laughs) If there is such a thing, I was not it. After the accident, he grabbed me and hugged me and started sobbing and said, are you okay? Like, I didn't have a scratch on me. I don't know how we came out alive, not a scratch on either of us. But he just like was like feeling my head, making sure I didn't have any bumps or cuts or scrapes. And he was like, I can't believe you lived through that and was sobbing. And my dad does not, my dad did not cry for me, did not show that kind of level of worry for me. So it was very eye-opening that that's the hardest part of that memory was that for me. Yeah. I don't know why. And how meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. In a weird way. (laughs) Like with the heart racing stuff, my generalized anxiety disorder is so bad, or maybe like it's postpartum anxiety. I don't know, but like you're talking, Nikki, and I'm hearing you. But all I'm seeing, like what's happening to my body is I'm starting to sweat. My heart is racing because you're talking about your dad. And all I'm hearing is my son is going to die that way. Like I'm visioning, I'm trying, I'm like, I'm transported into your dad. And I'm imagining looking at a car upside down with my child in it. And my child didn't survive. I don't know if this is normal to hear stories. Well, that's anxiety. This. But like, I just can't even imagine from a parent's perspective, like what, you know, how that could shake a parent. But yes, generalized anxiety yeah. disorder at its best. Yeah. Uh, so how far forward have you gotten? Just my mom, just like less than 24 hours into her suicide. Okay. So haven't even touched. No. Okay. Mm-mm. That's, that, I feel like that's going to be months away. <laughs> Ooh, but I feel like when I get there, like I can already tell you the emotions. When I talk about it, I get specific emotions start boiling. <laughs> 
And I think that that's just the way it is. And that's just stuff. That's the emotion I'm going to have to work through. Mm -hmm. Alyssa, take us back to 2010. What was the earliest childhood trauma that you worked through like age-wise? That is a good question. Probably, I want to say probably when I was about six or seven. And a lot of my childhood is is just gone. Poof, gone. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Handfuls of memories here and there from my whole childhood, but probably around when I was, no, you know what? I would have been after we moved. So I probably would have been more like eight or nine. Yeah. Yeah. Would be the first memory that I was processing through. Why do you feel like just hand, you only have a handfuls of childhood memories? I would say trauma is a part of it. And also, I mean, also I just don't have a great memory. So there's that. And I would say too, part of when you're a kid, like holding on to memories, part of that is your parents like remembering things with you. Remember when we did that thing or remember like, oh, look at this picture. Remember this thing. Mm -hmm. So my mom remarried when I was like, I don't know, 11 or 10 or something like that. And once she remarried, anything before that, we weren't, we weren't allowed to talk about. So life pre our new family was not something we really discussed. So, and I think that was just their way of just making a new family and like focusing on that. But I think that is another part of why I don't remember much either. But I also, I mean, I don't know, trauma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. How far forward have you gotten? Well, I'm not doing any EMDR at this point. So I'm... 100% 100% healed all the time. I have no <laughs> issues. <laughs> yeah. I, it's like the secret have... to life, y'all. <laughs> Drink the water. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, I have, I'm not doing any EMDR right now. I'm doing other therapy stuff, but yeah, I have worked up until most present day issues on EMDR. How about you, Heidi? How far did you go back? Well, this is where it gets a little funny. I've probably (laughs) completed, I don't know, my therapist would probably know better. I've probably completed maybe like, say, six to seven EMDR sessions. Now, this is where you're going to be like, huh? And each one is like only 15 seconds and then like a long break. Yeah, each passing. Yeah. Yeah, like is like maybe 15 seconds and then you have like this long break and then you do it again for 15 seconds. So it doesn't really even feel like this like long periods of time invested. The problem, and I just don't even know how to articulate it to this audience and put it into words. I started meditating a long, long time ago, like 20 something years ago, I took a meditation class. But before that, I was like always able to go inside pretty deep, pretty quickly. And I mean, it's hard for me, but I was able to do it and see lots of different things. Like I was hallucinating, you know, like no mushrooms needed, though I've tried that too. Of course you have. So (laughs) I think what's scary is that like once I start going in, it's like all sorts of weird shit comes up. I can't like stay on task. It's like all of a sudden it's like past live shit is coming out and dark stuff and people and none of these images make sense. And I'm like deep into, it's like my brain can fall into this like deep hallucinative 
meditative state and it's hard for me to like, it's like avoidance. It's like I go in and I'm still avoiding. So my therapist will say like, no, 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 no. I want you to go back to the beach in this moment and take away all these things that are coming up. And it's like to narrow down and narrow down and narrow down and narrow down. It's like something in my subconscious is just constantly trying to stop me from doing this. Mm-hmm. And so I just keep not getting very far, but I keep doing it. But then I get scared. So then I go in for the next session and I'll be like, cha, 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 all the things about the week. And then it's like, we have <laughs> 10 minutes left. And she's like, did you want to do some EMDR today? You know? And I'm like, okay, sure. And then we start it. And then I just, you know, the, I want to throw up and my heart is racing about to have a panic attack and I'm crying and I, we haven't even, we haven't even gotten there. So, I mean, I would say that I just haven't really, I just haven't given, my body hasn't given it a chance yet. I'm trying, I'm doing the things I'm listening and I'm visualizing, but I'm self-sabotaging EMDR. I mean, all of those, those bodily sensations though are valid and valuable and are a part of processing. I'm not going to tell you what your therapist needs to be doing, but I'm even just starting with those body sensations can be really valuable. Yeah. Because there's a lot of memories that we hold in our body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really scary. Just even reliving, like I'm starting to get teary. Just even like reliving to tell you what it is like to sit in a therapist's office and do my butterfly hands and left, right, left, right, left, right, and try to do what she's telling me to do. And it's like, you know, it's just very scary for me. I want to heal. I want to grow. I want to stop having an eating disorder. I want to move on with my life. I want to let go. And yet the hard work it takes to get there seems... It seems like I'm standing at the bottom of Mount Everest and I don't even have a, a backpack or yeah, warm clothes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I think that, I think you're not alone in that at all because dealing with the hardest things that have ever happened to you is very scary. It is very scary. Mm-hmm. And especially when you have been trying to just survive for most of your life and not even realizing that that was what you were doing was just trying to keep surviving, find the next party, keep surviving, find the next drug and keep surviving, (laughs) whatever, (laughs) you know, even if the drug is not a drug, you know, just find the next thing and just keep going, keep surviving, keep it down, keep going, you know, cupcakes and Marlboro lights and start the next business (laughs) and start the next thing and, you know, bury yourself in work or bury yourself in your kids or and this is not just you, this is anybody, this is, you know, mm-hmm. so like we just keep trying to just survive. And I think when you realize, when you stop and realize like, I'm just in survival mode and you start to try to go, okay, let's address the shit that is causing that. It's, it's fucking terrifying. Yeah, it is. We wouldn't have a podcast if we weren't all in survival mode. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're barely talking and I'm like bawling over here. It's like, I can barely say out loud that I have problems without (laughs) crying my face off. Let's stop talking about me for a minute and (laughs) (laughs) try my tears. Alyssa, what has been the hard, like, I just feel like I dumped on what is really hard about EMDR for me. 
What has been the hardest part of EMDR for you? I think the hardest part for me as a client was this, like starting the process. I was really scared. And when we started, like I, I can distinctly remember like seeing like a, a blank wall in front of me. And just like when we were processing, that's all I saw was like a wall. And it was like, what is even happening? And I just got so frustrated and like, this isn't going to work for me. This isn't going to work. And I'm never going to get better with these things. Like these things aren't really going to get any better. And I'm just hopeless. And then once I could let go of those fears and let go of, of all of that, then the processing started and it was amazing. Nikki, how about you? What has been the... Well, I know it's all hard. No, actually... EMDR does not scare me. And I didn't go into it scared. I went into it like head first. Let's go. And and my therapist said to me one day, she goes, I admire your tenacity. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> but EMDR itself, I know it's going to make me cry. I know I'm not going to be able to breathe. I know my heart rate is going to go crazy and it's going to be uncomfortable. I know that. What's hardest for me is the after effect of what's tomorrow. Like you don't realize that what you just processed is going to be processing for days and you don't know when it's going to come up. And it can be like a minute of some kind of big emotion or a body effect or physical pain or heart racing or whatever, or it can be days. The first day we started my mom, I cried the next I, 24 hours straight, like at work, just sobbing. And my boss is like, everything okay? <laughs> was like, it was like being raw and it just happened all over again. Did it feel like a permanent release though? Like that you were Yeah, it had never been that big of... since the day of yeah. her suicide. Like it had never been that big again since the day of her yeah. suicide. And it was... Horrible. Not accessible. That Yeah, I didn't, I had never been back to that kind of the intense emotion and physical pain of the suicide, except for that day. And then she was like, let's take this in smaller chunks instead of the bigger memory, the whole big memory. She was like, let's just go like minute by minute of how this, you recount this happening. And when it comes to a spot that is triggering, we'll stop. And we'll reprocess that. So there I am. Wow. Can you tell me about the day after that hard day? So you go in and you reprocess and then you're crying for 24 hours. Is there a moment like the next day after that or the next day after that where you feel lighter? Yeah, the day. So I cried from the minute I, well, the minute I walked into session until the next evening, I cried. And then the next, the day, the second day, 48 hours after I was fine, I felt better. But then the day after that, I got really, so when my mom died, I just always remember feeling like I can't stay in my skin. Like I can't be in my body. There's no comfort here. There's no Mm -hmm. comfort to lay down. There's no comfort from a person. There's no comfort from walking. There's like, you just want out of your body. Basically, I don't want to be in my body. I don't want to die. I just don't want to be here. 
So that feeling came back like 72 hours later where I was like stifled. I don't want to be here. There's no comfort. And that's when I walked and it was like tornadic rain happening at the park walking and almost getting blown over with rain and wind. And I'm like, I'm just going to get, I'm going to have to hold on to a tree and hope that a tornado doesn't go. Wow. But it was like, you mean like right before there was the no tornado where hit. for me to go. I just had to get out. So I went out and I walked. But I mean, you mean really like right before those big tornadoes took down Nashville? No, no. Different. Oh, okay. I was was like, one of the hurricanes came through. I'm texting Alyssa. She's like, dude, (laughs) get in your car. Oh, (laughs) my goodness. So that would be part of your self-care. Yeah. Hiking and walking is my self-care from that. But it was weird because I was equating the weather was tornadic and crazy. And that is how I felt inside at that moment. So it was, it was weird that it was happening inside and outside at that moment. That's yeah. how I felt. Yeah. Really but, interesting. Um, I didn't go drink tequila or anything. It's not like I go do that. <laughs> Actually, I stopped drinking tequila so much once I started therapy because you have to be, you can't, that's yeah. total counterproductive. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes we just drink less too when we're happy, like when you're <laughs> dating. Maybe, <somebody>. maybe not. <laughs> Do you have any advice for anyone listening that is looking at doing EMDR, has been an EMDR for ways to take care of themselves in the hours and days afterwards? Like, and in this, I'm asking both of you guys. So, like, Dr. Alyssa from both clinician standpoint, do you offer like strategies to your clients after a session? And then also what has worked for you and Nikki? You know, I know Nikki, you just said like the hiking and moving your body, but like what else could we offer to the audience for ways to be prepared to take care of yourself when these ripple effects happen after a deep session? You know, one of the things that's really important before starting any reprocessing is making sure that the person has some good coping mechanisms, right? So there are a few exercises in EMDR and you you referenced one, which is the calm, safe place. There's another one that I like, which is the container. Have you guys done that exercise? Mm-mm. No, the container mm-hmm. exercise. Oh, it's an excellent exercise. You essentially like create some kind of container to be able to put hard things in temporarily. It's just Mm. a temporary holding space for tough things. And I think that is really valuable too for people. And, you know, so just being able, I just try to, as a clinician, make sure that people have good coping skills, whether it's one of those couple of things or other things. And I think I'm often like, okay, who can you talk to? It's so great that you're coming to see me. And, you know, like, once a week for, you know, our 50 minute session. Yeah. Like that's, that's really good. And also like, that's not going to be enough as far as getting the support that you need. So I try to make sure people have social supports and they can reach out to somebody and say like, I'm just having a hard day. And then, yeah, finding some kind of activity or something that's going to be able to calm you down that isn't potentially destructive, like alcohol, (laughs) finding other ways to calm the body. Cool. As we're sitting here and I'm sitting next to my Peloton, I'm thinking as soon as we hang up, 
that was so much emotion for me. I'm thinking I probably need yeah. to get on my bike and just ride it out for a little yeah. bit. I'm definitely going hiking. Good idea. <laughs> some of those, you know, some of those feelings. It's very interesting as a childbirth educator who is certified in hypno babies. Mm-hmm. And we do the container exercise when you started talking when we're processing change of plans. So if someone was, you know, doing an unmedicated birth or something, and then they have to have a cesarean section, we use the container exercise. So it's interesting. I didn't hear about that in the MDR, but all of these different parallel types of mental activities to get our bodies calm and safe. And then we also do special safe place or calm safe place and hypno babies. So maybe I should listen to some of my tracks after an EMDR session. I did hypno babies for when I was bringing my son into the world. And there were some things in there that I was like, the affirmations was the biggest shift for me because I was so scared of giving birth and doing the daily affirmations was so amazing and like such a mental shift that since then I have been like, okay, I need to find affirmations for whatever it is that I'm stressing out about or I'm really anxious about. And it is amazing the shift that that makes for me. Yeah. I may just turn it on and pretend like there's a baby in the belly. Well, there's other, there's other <laughs> affirmations out there like lists of like that are like on YouTube and stuff like that. You can, you can just listen to. There's one that's just like women something affirmation and it's amazing. Yeah. It's like I'm a strong woman. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's leave everybody with something or somewhere to go like that. So I will leave everyone with one of my favorite podcasts called the Women's Meditation Network. And they're really short meditations, seven or eight minutes long, and they're mostly affirmations. So it's mainly the narrator, Katie Kremitzos, just speaking beautifully about how powerful we are. And so, Dr. Alyssa, you said you turned to maybe YouTube? Yeah, there's some really great affirmations on YouTube that you can just put on for 10 minutes and close your eyes and just repeat them back, as silly as that might sound. But doing that on a daily basis can make a a very big difference and a big mental shift. I think this is really good in case somebody doesn't already have a tool. Like they're listening to this podcast right now and they're like, that's great yeah. that Nikki hikes and you do this and whatever, but I don't have that tool. So here, yeah. we're giving you a couple. Nikki, do you have any other tools that you've used, like any apps or music? I make music playlists like ridiculously. So I have one for every mood. Yeah, I just make my playlists and I will hike listening to music or I just turn on in the house and... Music's a big thing. I listen to that a lot or I put my earbuds in and just listen. Maybe we could screenshot your playlists for Instagram. Yeah, Yeah. there's a lot. (laughs) You know, what's funny is my therapist told me one time when I was having a really hard time, like make a a playlist, like make a playlist Mm of songs that make you feel good or whatever. And this was not long before Jamie came out. (laughs) And uh, maybe it was like a year before, I want to say. And and also like I was not fully deconstructed yet. So things that were on this playlist were like some Christian songs and like songs from our wedding. (laughs) And then I went back to that playlist after after the the bomb dropped. And I was like, oh, this is a this is now a triggering list of songs. Like I need a new one. (laughs) Yeah. 
So I made an eight wing nine playlist, my Enneagram. And it's like, this is my me play. Like if I had to describe me in songs, this would be it. That's cool. Cool. And for anyone listening, if you just are happening upon this episode, because you're curious about EMDR, rewind back to episode two and listen to us chatting with Liz from the Rude Ass Enneagram. But I never even thought about making an Enneagram specific playlist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really cool. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps up this episode about EMDR. What a fun and touching thing, I think, to talk about our own experiences with EMDR. And if you have any questions, feel free to just shoot them to us to our email. Thanks. It's the trauma podcast at gmail.com or on our Instagram or Facebook. Feel free to reach out to us if you've got any questions and maybe we'll answer them at a later episode. Maybe we'll have another follow-up episode to this if it's, if it generates that many questions and curiosity about it. But yeah, thanks for sticking in there with us. Stay tuned for our next episode, which we conjured. And actually we got a reputable psychic lover who gave us some very big insights to our future men, apparently. Found her on Facebook, so should be good. It's definitely reputable. <laughs> it's from Facebook. Everything's real on all Facebook. All Facebook psychics are. <laughs> yep. See you next episode. Thanks It's the Trauma Podcast is not a substitute for therapy or mental health advice. If you or someone you love is in crisis, please call 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. You can also text the word HOME to 741-741 to reach a trained crisis counselor. God, you're such an asshole. Thanks. It's the drama. 